Welcome to Relate Your Research, the online podcast featuring social work researchers. I'm Jessica Renarsson, and learning should be relatable. Welcome to Relate Your Research, the online podcast for social work researchers. We're really excited today to have Dr. Melinda Detoy, a postdoctoral research fellow from the University of Johannesburg. Melinda describes herself as a community psychologist at heart. She completed her Bachelor of Arts at the University of Pretoria and then went on to complete her PhD in psychology in Belgium and the Northwest University. Her postdoctoral research focuses on individuals' current situations with livelihood and today we have her in response to an article that she wrote on unemployment in South Africa for conversations.com. We're really excited to hear her thoughts and theories behind unemployment and just the interesting perspective and narrative that came from the conversations.com article. Great. Well, welcome, Melinda. It's really lovely to have you here on Relate Your Research with us today. And we're encouraged and excited to hear about some of the work that you've been doing. Our first UJ representative. Um, So that's really exciting. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jessica. And uh, thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity to share my research. Definitely. So I see that you've been involved with projects for a number of years, specifically to do with unemployment in South Africa and and livelihoods. But maybe you could tell us a bit about your backstory and the journey that you went on to be involved in social development research in South Africa. I studied at the University of Pretoria. I studied um, general psychology. But in my master's year, I realized that I, I've just got this love to be in the community and especially marginalized and um, impoverished communities, you know, um, communities that is under-resourced. Um, it was lovely for me to speak to the people, to hear what they think, uh, the way that they see the world. Um, and I just uh, decided I was going to do something totally eating disorders or something in my master, for my master's dissertation. And then I decided there and then that I'd rather look at um, how children develop in um, so-called informal settlements. And that was in 1991. So it was a very bad time in our country. Um, People advised me not to go into informal settlements, but I just had to, you know, the researcher in me was driven and my curiosity about these people um, that I was kept away from for so long and uh, yet they are part of my country people that, you know, I saw myself as one of them. Um, I was kept apart by uh, a system, uh, the apartheid system, and I so wanted to to hear these stories. And it was almost for me like um, going to another country um, while I was still in my own country. So that um, that brought up a lot of identity uh, things. But so I worked in um, in Harangkue. 
uh, in an uh, informal settlement looking at uh, 40 children's uh, developmental needs and how, you know, is the physical environment more important or the social environment? And my finding for that was that the social environment for the children's development was more important than the physical environment, although that was also important, but to have a stable um, family life and things like that was more important. And um, that, like I said, was in 1991-1992. And I went on to be a lecturer in psychology at the Northwest University. And I lectured for a long time and um, I um, supervised master's degree students. Um, but it kept pulling me. I had eight um, community uh, psychology projects in the vicinity of Potchefstroom, uh, Ikaging and Muadin. Um, so we did uh, school, uh, work in schools and uh, things like that. And then uh, an opportunity came to do my PhD on unemployment in South Africa, which to me was very dear to my heart. And it was a joint degree. Um, one part was done in South Africa um, under uh, the supervision of uh, Professor Rothman here in South Africa at the Northwest University and then at Leuven in Belgium under the supervision of Professor Hans de Wette and Professor Anja van den Broek. And um, that took me on a journey of uh, five years. I completed in four years, but I spent a whole year just uh, winning the trust of the communities of Orange Farm and Boibertong. Um, especially Orange Farm became very near to my heart. It's a lovely, lovely place with lovely people. It's a very vibrant place. And it, uh, although both are uh, marginalized, um, under-resourced communities, they do differ. The one is much more uh, as if the people are depressed. The feeling that you get when you drive into Boipatong is very much a depressed, downtrodden feeling. Whereas mm -hmm. in Orange Formal, the other people are extremely poor and uh, the unemployment rate there um, goes up to 68%. Um, that is, you know, we, we estimated it. It's very vibrant and it's very lively and it's very diverse. You get everybody there. Um, I used uh, Isizulu and the Sutu there and there's a lot of Kosas. There's a lot of uh, people from other African nations. So I, I absolutely loved it there. I virtually moved there. Um, but yes, uh, the experiences of the unemployed though um, were very much the same. Uh, because they are so uh, marginalised and under-resourced and impoverished. Sure. So really a story of community kind of calling calling out to you to say, come and come and see, you know, and and see the experiences we're having having here being removed at that time in some way, actually. Absolutely. And um, to me, it's very, very sad that we sit in 2020. And people in Orange Farm would ask me, uh, so from which country are you? And I would say, I'm from South Africa. 
And they say, are you German? And I would say, no, uh, my grandparents' grandparents uh, were born here. We are really from the soil. We, I, I'm just as South African as you are, if they are South African. So, uh, and it's strange. And then they would say, but white people do not come here, especially in, in Orange Farm. Orange Farm has got this, um, this uh, label that it's extremely um, dangerous there, um, you know, and still um, moving in, in circles of people of my own culture, they will say, are you absolutely mad? They will kill you there or what, what. And I've never, ever, not in any township since uh, I started working there in 1991, 1992, felt um, unsafe. Um, you know, and I think it's the way that you go in. You must know the gatekeepers. You must um, not just barge in there or hang around there without any um, goal. Um, but if you've got and the people know that you don't have ill uh, meaning um, and that you're really there because you feel part of them and that you really want to share what you've got. Um, and especially I was privileged. I, I, I was privileged that I, I got to go to university when they couldn't. And I got some links because of that. And I've got some knowledge because of that. And I want to impart that knowledge. Um, I'm not young anymore. I do not need anything anymore. And I just want to share my knowledge, my links, uh, what I have um, to people that I see as my, as my people, although I am a different color from the majority of them there. Um, and I am. I am uh, mostly the only white person at birthday parties, at um, functions, at weddings. <laughs> Um, and it's sad to me, um, even a fun run in Cebu King, um, I, I invite people and then they say, no, we are afraid. And it's really sad that after all these years, uh, we are still kept apart socially. And it's that grappling with community and restrictions and are we, are we one or are we separate? And I think particularly from a cultural perspective, it becomes difficult because you're talking geographics, but it, it does become about culture, doesn't it? I think as a topic, it can often feel totally overwhelming for many South Africans to have to grapple with this idea of unemployment in South Africa and what does it mean for us? Um, with regards to your project, what were the aims um, that your project hoped to achieve? You know, Jessica, the first thing that I realized when I started to read up on unemployment and specifically unemployment in South Africa, I realized that we speak so often of numbers. You know, our unemployment rate stands at, and it keeps on uh, increasing. But we do not understand how it really, really feels day-to-day -day living as an unemployed person. What is it like? Um, and then at first, I was thinking to do um, interviews with all the um, population groups in our country. But when I looked at the figures, again, the figures, um, I realized that our biggest problem 
lies within the black community. Um, you know, and that affects us all. Um, if such a big part of our, our country, uh, people of our people are unemployed and without a secure income, that means without secure source of food, clothing, it impacts on us all. So, uh, and then looking further into that specific group of the population, I realized that even more um, pertinent is the problem in the under-resourced, marginalized communities, which we call townships in South Africa. So I looked at the townships and then I just drove in and I asked around to find some gatekeepers, community leaders, and that, and that is also something that researchers must take note of. You know, you cannot plan a, a project and just think that within a week, two weeks after I've received my ethical clearance, I can start with data gathering. It really takes a lot of time to build trust, to find out who's the actual great gatekeepers. You know, being uh, from a Western uh, culture or a more, uh, we were brought up in a, a typical Western culture, you think you go to the, to the government uh, structures. So you go to the councillors. And they are not, especially in these marginalized communities, they are not the gatekeepers. They are not trusted by the people that I've learned. So you must find yeah. out, is it church leaders? Is it uh, other people? And then uh, to take um, Orange Farm as uh, an example, I found a Mr. Briggs McCullough, um, after a long time, uh, speaking to a lot of people on, on, on grassroots level, to find out that this person has got a huge influence in the community. Uh, there's a local radio station, Theta FM, and he has got a slot on there, which he uses to, you know, get his message across. He's a wonderful, fantastic man. He, he calls himself apolitical. Um, he was... Um, in the apartheid years, he was a very avid um, ANC supporter and a freedom fighter. Uh, he still uh, uh, does not have teeth uh, because of that. Um, and he's a soccer legend, but uh, he said he opted for the poor. He opted not to be on the uh, gravy train and get all the money and everything he wants to stay with his people and help them. So he's a paralegal, and I found him after a lot of interviews with a lot of people in the community. And he's been a great help. He's really been the gatekeeper. He opened up the community to me. Um, and uh, they've accepted me, I think, mainly because I was uh, associated with him. They really trust him because he's apolitical. Um, he speaks to the ANC if he thinks it needs to be, he speaks to the DA if he thinks uh, that's necessary, but he's really for the people, for his people, for the community. So um, I started off uh, with him, and then in my meeting with him, although he's a paralegal, he, uh, on the same premises, he's got a waste managing um, 
organization. So the people would bring uh, plastic and cans and things and you would pay uh, them money for that. And being there and speaking to him and visiting for days on end, I could see these people uh, hauling a huge bag, old women, hauling a huge bag of plastics, you know, all the way. You can see this, this has taken her the whole day. And then she gets 10 rand or 15 rand and she receives it as if it's a um, thousand rand to, to some people. It's the only money that she's seen for a long time. You can see that. Um, so being there, I could see the need. So I decided to focus on, on the unemployed there. And uh, in my interviews, it, uh, I, I used qualitative research, um, in-depth interviews, um, semi-structured in-depth interviews. So I had guiding questions, but I probed. And the majority of the interviews were uh, two hours. And I conducted the interviews at the uh, people's houses, or I would ask them to come to the community center in Boipetong or the, the center of Brixmokolo in Orange Farm. And we would sit down, and one of the questions that I've asked them is, um, please close your eyes. And then I say they must relax and everything. And then I say, I'm going to say a word, and then you must tell me what comes to mind. And I would say to them, um, okay, if they're ready, I would say the word unemployment. What comes to mind? What do you see? What do you associate it with? And Jessica, it was absolutely horrendous. It's things like blood, uh, death. And then what I got from more, more people are angry, anger, angry. Um, uh, it was, and then I would ask them if they feel um, comfortable, if they could draw me a picture of what they see which the majority did not feel comfortable with. So they just wrote down the words in their own uh, language. I had a, um, a, what I term a co-researcher with me that was a mother tongue spe speaker of either uh, Isizulu or Sasutu. And uh, so mm -hmm. I, I really encouraged them to do the interview um, in their mother tongue. I have uh, trained the co-researchers in 10 very intensive sessions so that we would actually be one interviewer in two bodies. Um, yes. They would know exactly what I wanted to elicit and they would help me. Um, but that's also, you know, something to look at is um, whether one should be there if you or what, you know, because they have such um, fantastic manners or they are so considerate, all of them, that um, many a time they would switch to English because I'm there. And then I would yes. say, no, no, because I speak a little Zulu, I can, I can understand quite more than I can speak. And a little, uh, much less though, but a little Sasuti. Um, but I would really encourage them to do that because it's very difficult to express real hurt um, in, in another language, in a third or fourth language. 
I'm so aware of how quantitative data would never be able to present this, the the hurt and the emotion. Um, and in some ways, these negative feelings that you're speaking about just aren't present or represented in a way that would share it as you just have. No, no, absolutely. And you, if you look at their body language as well, uh, what we did uh, to be um, more ethical is we had lifeline counsellors from, from the community. That's also a process to have a support structure so that after the interview that the person can easily access the this other person, the help, the assistance. It does not help to have the university's counsellor to be on standby because how, how would an unemployed person access those first people? So we uh, contacted Lifeline counsellors, which were absolutely amazing. Um, we contacted them. Uh, and then what we would do is to have them on standby, but without them seeing this unemployed person, so to keep their identity, you know, um, to not have their identity known. Um, and But three times, three people uh, broke down and absolutely shocked. And the one was a young guy, and he was so embarrassed, but he, he's just, so at the end of his rope, um, and then what, what adds to this is that uh, three, three people, the one said, and that was the young guy, he said he's been looking for work everywhere. He has really tried to be creative, cannot find anything. And then when you interview this person, uh, people, and they switch to English to be, you know, considerate, you can see that some of them, uh, the English is of such a, a, a poor quality that you can think that somebody that employs an employer being spoiled for choice, because if you advertise a position, you get. 100, 122, 200 CVs. You can really pick and choose that a person that you invite for an interview, if you get, if he gets to there, um, and he cannot communicate, that will be a huge um, barrier for him to get the job. So, um, yeah, I, I, I love this so much that uh, I, I'm going on and on, but. Um, uh, they they say he said then um, what he does to get some some money to to um, keep himself and his family alive is to buy drugs and he knows it's wrong and then he gets little smaller packages and he sells that and from the profit he makes he buys more drugs um, and and he sobbed because he said that he you know, he will land in hell one day and that God doesn't agree with what he's doing. And, and you know, that aggravates the whole feeling of not being unemployed. The one lady said, you know, I've got nothing. I've tried everywhere. Um, all I have, all I have is this body. It's all I have. And I hate every single minute of it. 
and some takes me and do not even pay, but I have to do this. And then another lady say, I know I'm a Christian, I believe, but I steal. I, I steal to keep alive. I, I steal to give food to my children. Um, one of the ladies said she, she eats soil um, just to keep this stomach from, you know, growling and feigning from hunger. It is, it is so painful to hear these stories that, um, you know, it is, it, it's, really, it's really bad out there. Yeah, sure. Do you think that, I mean, this all being said, that unemployment is actually misunderstood? To start with a definition, it's really a problem. Um, what What is unemployed? You know, when I went in uh, and I met Bricks and with his help, I identified certain spots where the young people would get together or some of the older ladies. I went there and I told them about my research and that I want to look at the experience of being unemployed. Uh, some people would say to me they are unemployed, and when I interview them, um, they would. I would say to them, "Well, you know, in a way, uh, you look to me that you do eat, and you know, where where does the funds come from uh, that you buy food from?" And then they would say things like, well, I do hair, I plate hair, uh, or I wash cars, or um, I, um, I've got a little spot where I sell um, fruit and vegetables. And then I would say, but then, don't you identify yourself then as a very small micro-entrepreneur? And they would say, no, 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 I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm unemployed because this is not what I want to do. This is hustling. They call it hustling. Um, I just hustle a while while waiting. So some of them will wait passively, just sitting, watching TV, uh, sit at the spaza shops, chatting. Others will wait um, actively, um, hustling, doing some some stuff, and even uh, illegitimate. Uh, stuff like selling drugs but they will wait and I don't think our definition of unemployment capture that um, so perhaps uh, one should look at the definition of what, is, what does it mean uh, to be unemployed uh, that's the first thing and the second thing is uh, I think we say to be unemployed is just a lack of money uh, which is obviously um, the latent um, thing, uh, but these other things like a job offers you an identity, a job offers you to get out and be active, a job offers you social um, uh, probability to, to be social, to meet other people and speak to other people. Um, a job offers you the opportunity to be busy with things bigger than yourself. And all that uh, uh, falls away, um, uh, fall away when you uh, do not have a job. One would think that being unemployed is uh, abnormal normality, 
uh, in the townships and that being unemployed is not such a big a deal, considering stigmatization and name calling, labeling or things like that. But you won't believe it, it still is. Although the majority of, especially the young people are unemployed, it's still sort of, they say that um, people in the community would label them. Uh, men would uh, say they are called a boy because they do not um, provide for their families. So they're not a man yet. They are still a boy. Or mama's boy, if the mother is still, you know, taking a social grant and looking after him, he's a mama's boy. And to them, it's absolutely, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a label that they hate. And they would say things like uh, when there's something that went missing, the first person that they will look at or people they would look at are the unemployed and say, but you took it. You, you stole it. So although it's you, you would say that, oh, all of us are unemployed, so what's the issue? It's not like that. So even the support in the community is not there. Uh, they, they see the community as uh, gossiping, uh, turning, turning against them. Uh, so even that support, and a lot of them said to, to me that Ubuntu is dead. There's, um, you know, the, the resources are so little that you take what you get and there's not enough to go around to share. Um, so that's, that's it. And, and like you said, um, that is not reflected in the numbers. You, you think, okay, these people, they are unemployed, they don't earn money. And you don't see deeper that they've, they've got all this to deal with. Absolutely. Do you foresee further research opportunities in this in this field? It's very clear that you are passionate about the space and, and the journey that you've been on has clearly been really transformative. What would you say would be sort of the next steps for, for this um, topic? I think to find out exactly um what if we say unemployed perhaps there should be levels of of unemployment and to to get people that that are uh, in inverted commas uh, passively waiting for a job uh, more active so uh, what i am looking at at the moment is how we can empower young people not to become entrepreneurs because there's a lot of uh, people that say ah oh, there's our answer um let, let us get more entrepreneurs and there's people that say but i don't want to be an entrepreneur and they are very scared that being busy with an entrepreneurial venture will take them out of the space to look for a job or people will say let's help these people because this one is already sort of making ends meet, sort of. Um, so they are very scared of um, presenting um, as if they are uh, in a job, um, but not presented as entrepreneurship. Uh, because I think uh, to some people that's off-putting. That's also uh, something interesting that I found in my research is that 
to be in a retail space, I don't know, that is also something that one can look at uh, with further research, is um, currently that's not a very desirable job to be in a retail space. There's some other thing there that one could further um, uh, uh, investigate. Um, so they would say something like uh, when two people were at school together and the one bumps into the other, you won't say, well, I'm selling stuff because they will say, oh, my word, you know, she, she did not amount to much. She's selling stuff. Um, so, but to not um, say, let us empower people to become entrepreneurs, but get something else, you know, get them involved in, say, for instance, a program. But that is what I'm going to look at at the moment is that I found uh, that the sort of um, hustlers, if they prefer that, um, are much more um, resilient. They are more innovative. Uh, they are problem solvers. And that, uh, you know, especially when you look at the future of work, those are very powerful attributes that we want in workers one day for the, for the future to be agile. Um, and I was wondering, shouldn't we look at uh, not terming um, programs to say we are going to empower people to become entrepreneurs, but rather say we are going to empower people to be more cognitive, agile, um, and see whether we can't get them to identify opportunities easier. Um, and while that, or because that um, expands the experience. And I've also found that when I say when you apply for jobs, uh, do you say that you've got experience with uh, um, running a small business? And then they would laugh and say, this isn't a small business. I'm hustling. And I say, so a small business, this. Because you've got somebody that, that helps you, that you um, pay a part of your income. And, and that's an employee, and they would laugh, and they do not recognize this hustling as entrepreneurial because that is not a um, desirable job. So perhaps that is, is somewhere to go. And then uh, as a psychologist, I want these people to cope um, while the economists are looking for some other way out of this. And then getting... Um, all our people in South Africa to understand what it's like because uh, the, the going narrative is, oh, these people are lazy or, you know, these people get social grants and then it's easier just to go and collect the social grants and hang around the tavern or the spaza shop. And it's really, really not true. Perhaps there's one or two, but the majority is really suffering and I don't think it's about there. We must, and that is why your uh, platform is so very, very valuable. Uh, even if, if um, our researchers know what these people go through, they are really, really suffering. Um, and and to, to, to look at it, and there's a lot of re research still 
to be done on um, how can we um, take people that has been uh, neglected by a very, very bad school system to make them, um, you know, more skilled very quickly. Uh, that is a, a, a huge uh, challenge. Um, but I think uh, um, our uh, president is on the right path with his um, initiatives. Um, I just think that he hasn't got all the support from, you know, local councillors, because that's what the majority of the people say is our councillors, uh, they do not care. They just do not care. And I think that if we can do this uh, youth initiative of the president and taking it down to grassroots, that will be absolutely awesome because I think what he does is going to help a lot. Definitely. And, and really um, start to spread some hope amongst these communities. Oh, yes. So any final thoughts that you may have for our listeners, whether it be social workers or developmental researchers who are working in communities, any advice you would maybe have for, for early researchers who would be listening to this podcast? It's a life commitment almost because there's no quick fixes. And what I found, uh, and, and that sometimes is very challenging, is that you cannot go in, have a program, for instance, intervention or something, go in, do the intervention, uh, think you empower people and just disappear. It's, it's really almost a life work. You have to walk with these people for really 10 to 15 to 20 years because um, the system has failed these uh, vulnerable people. And um, just to go in, do a program, think you empower people to go on with the program after you've disengaged does not work really. You have to go back. You have to walk alongside these people and not to make them feel as if they do not have the power to do this. That is not what I'm saying. They are empowered, but to, to keep engaged with them, to keep them on their feet, because all of us, even me, even uh, every caretaker, needs somebody to, to strengthen their hands. And so do they. And because they are uh, still marginalized, they need that more than uh, people that are not marginalized. So it's really a life journey. And if you leave, if you must leave to take up another job or whatever, see to it that there's somebody who could look into and, and just supporting them on a regular basis and not just disappear because that makes it also very difficult for, for uh, coming researchers to get in because people say that, oh, it's from the university. They come in, they take data, and then they leave. Uh, somebody said to me, I don't want you to write a book about me that I must buy to read about me. So... Um, I think it's a, a, you must realize that if you engage in this and you're not up to it to really invest yourself and 
uh, for a for a long time. Perhaps you should look at at something else. Um, you know, not not working with these vulnerable people and strengthening people that that well, we've got different strengths and some uh, that is not their strength to look to something else in research. Mm, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, um, your passion, and really just sharing your journey so honestly with us today. We will be putting links in the show notes for some of the work that you've done, as well as the article you wrote in theconversation.com. So if any of our listeners are curious about some of the work and pieces you've done, that will be available for them. Perfect. And thank you for you, Jessica. And if people want to contact me, they're more than welcome. I love to take people to Orange Farm. So if you want to visit Orange Farm and the wonderful people there, I would be absolutely honored to take them. Amazing. Well, there's an, an open invitation to our listeners. So thank you for that. Thank you, Jessica. Wonderful. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We would love to hear from you. And if you are listening through iTunes, please leave us a review. If you are listening through Iono FM or any of the other platforms, please subscribe or leave us a comment. All of these things help us to improve our reach and promote the podcast further. Why should research be confined to pen and paper? Make sure you've subscribed to not miss out on any of our discussions or browse through our previous episodes to see if there are any episodes you think someone would benefit from.